Good morning. Good morning, morning. Father, we do just thank you so much for, for this time that you've given us today to hear what you have to say through your word. Thankful that we can sing to you. We can sing truth about us, about you, about this world. And I just pray that you would just help us to help us to see and believe who we are according to what you have said. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, human beings. Human beings. That's what we are, right? We are storytelling and relational creatures. Believers and non-believers pretty much agree on that. We tell stories and we relate. So our identity is formed by the stories we tell ourselves about the world and our place in the world. Stories, even if some call it myth, give us meaning. Relationships form us, form our identity. None of us would even be here without a mom and a dad. Neuroscience and attachment theory are reminding us that our relationships with others form who we are and who we are becoming. And it does so at the actual material and physical level. And it does so at the social level. So the material level of our actual brain and then our minds and the interconnection, and the interconnection between others. So I was thinking story plus relationships equals identity. And it's more than that, but it's not less than that. So as a church, we've been thinking about identity through the summer. We've been asking the perennial question, who am I? We focused on several different lenses through which to see our Christian identity in the Bible, like I am the temple, I am justified, I am in Christ. And this morning we're going to continue to look at one theme in particular, but since we're ending the series and then we're going to return to finish Matthew in the fall, I thought it would be helpful for a moment to step back and contrast the stories that our culture is telling about who we are with the overarching story of the Bible and what God tells us about our identity. So today's going to look a little bit different. We're going to begin with some of the narratives our culture teaches us, and then we're going to move to the plot line of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, creation to new creation, and then we're going to finish hearing what the brother of Jesus has to tell us about our identity in the letter of James. And so all of us, even if we don't have the kind of personality that that wrestles with the big philosophical questions of who am I, why am I here, all of us wrestle with identity issues. Because we believe some kind of story about ourselves and some kind of story about this world. And our theoretical beliefs don't always match up with our practical beliefs. Depending on the day, the beliefs you have about who you are fluctuate. Oftentimes, the way that you might answer the question out loud to your friends, to your Christian friends, would be the theologically correct answer. But inside, your self-talk inside has a different story to say, different answers to give. 
So what story are you believing about yourself today? What story do you believe about you, about your place in this world? What does God, if he thinks about you at all, which he does, think about you? How have your relationships, your family of origin, your friends, your spouse influenced you? What words from the past or the present people in your life, in the past, in the present, what words that they have spoken have defined you or are defining your destiny? And God wants us to hear His Word first. His desire is that our identity would be formed by His story. The story that He is telling, the story that He has spoken, and then that we would be connected to Him, to the person of Jesus, His Son. But first, let's hone in on what our culture is saying. I believe that identity formation in our culture is more challenging than it used to be generations ago. Since the West has become increasingly post-Christian and secular, we are more anxious than we used to be. One of the reasons for our anxiety is that though we enjoy many freedoms, though we have abundant prosperity that generations before us could hardly even imagine, we have become unhinged, unlinked from realities that used to be foundational to identity, like belief in God, like growing up in one particular place, like reliable institutions like marriage and family. And we're skeptical, we're even cynical and doubtful of any kind of authority in general, whatever it is. We become a disenchanted people treating the supernatural as a myth aside from the magic of technology that's actually in our pockets. In secular culture, we can experience a ton of pleasure, but not much meaning. We live in a world that's soaked in endless consumeristic options, constant entertainment, a barrage of information about anything, anywhere, anytime. We can fly across the world, go to a completely different culture. We can start a new life, but we don't even have to fly to make a different identity. We can live an identity in digital life way different than real life. We can indulge in a harem larger than Solomon of women or men through pornography. We can present whatever image we want other people to see through social networking. And so the, store, the, the star of the cultural story is you. You're the star. It's self with a capital S. And so we've moved from, when you look back over history, from polytheism to monotheism to this kind of polyselfism where we don't have a pantheon of gods but a pantheon of self-identities to create. We become our own celebrities. And the narrative that we get told through marketing, media, teachers, therapists, is that we can be whoever we want to be. We can create our own destiny. We can pursue our own happiness. We should be true to ourselves. And if only we'd look hard enough inside, we would find ourselves. And so we don't need the shackles of previous generations tying us to a particular God or to a particular sacred text 
we don't even need the shackles of our own gender, our own biology. Gender itself is fluid. It's a product of culture, not biology. I can be whoever I want to be. I can sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. I can believe in one religion, several religions, patch them all together. I can be an atheist. As long as I am not hurting or hating on anyone else, it's all good. And so this story that we are being told or sold, depending on how we look at it, is that self-expression is the highest virtue. That it's the divine right, though it's divine in the sense of that we ourselves create it. And so this initially feels like the height of democratic individualistic freedom, but it carries its own kinds of shackles. It's enslaving. It's anxiety-provoking. It's lonely. It's meaningless. And all of us, whether we are Christian or not, swim in that. We're influenced by it. We live it, we breathe it, we click it every single day. And so that's the story that we are told. And on some days, some moments, some months, years that we believe. But the Bible gives us an alternative story, a different way of looking at reality. And it places us in relationship with people that are more central to the story than us, than me, than self. And so the Bible immerses us in a different drama than the latest one we're hooked on. And the reason why we listen to all that scripture this morning is because I wanted us to remember just some of the hallmarks of the story that God is telling from creation to new creation. So if we got that little wonderful, beautiful, artistic rendering. (laughs) There it is. I put up there, who am I, our story, colon, story and relationship, and then kind of drew a big line. Similar to uh, the one I drew back when we were doing uh, the end times. And first of what we have is God. God is the beginning. Before there was even a beginning, there was God. There is nothing without God. He is the uncreated creator. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's no human experience without the existence of God. We are completely dependent upon Him. We are completely formed by Him. He is God. There is no other. And so God is the central character in the Bible's story. He made the material world good. It even says very good. No death, only life. He made human beings, male and female, in His image to rule and to reign on earth like royalty. He made them healthy. He made them whole. And He gave them a garden to enjoy His world. He rested on day seven, not because he was tired, but because creation was complete, because he was satisfied in what he had made. And so this means that in this alternative story, at the beginning at least, where that first dot is, and Adam, before the fall, this means that we are not the creators of our own identities. 
But we are given identity as a gift. So we're not a product of evolution, of impersonal chance. And we do not exist solely for our own pleasure, but we are the creation of a personal God who has made us, who has formed us. But Adam failed. Hence that big X, fall. Adam failed in the task God gave him in the earth. While Eve was deceived, Adam rebelled against God, blatantly disobeying his word. And sin, sickness, and death entered the world. And so Adam was removed from the garden, the beautiful garden, and thrust into a world of thorns and thistles where he and his family would experience nakedness and shame and life apart from God. And so Adam is the deadbeat dad of the human race. We're born into him. We're born into Adam's sin and into a post-Adam world. This means that his sin becomes the very identity of every one of his children. And the Bible tells us that the human race is born in Adam, that old humanity is in him. Which means that they don't just do sinful things, they don't just make bad choices, but they are sinners, physically dying and spiritually dead. And so it means that we shouldn't be surprised at the state of the world. And it means that finding ourselves is not going to save us. Finding hope in politics is not going to save us. Self will not save us. Apart from Jesus, we will repeat the tragedies of history over and over again. On a big scale or on a little scale. But the Bible doesn't stop there. The Bible story gives us good news at the beginning of the story. That the beginning of the story is not the end of the story. And that the Creator is also the Redeemer. God made a promise to Eve that a second Adam would come. One of her seed, one of her offspring, would come and would crush the head of the serpent. And that's what God did. God Himself came into the fallen world in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's the next one. And Jesus reversed all the effects that sin put on the world and upon our bodies, our souls, our spirits. And He did so like in any good suspense movie or novel. He did it with a twist. He did it by dying. He forgave sinners by dying for them, by, resurrected, by resurrecting from the dead. He triumphed over the serpent. And so in the person of Jesus, we have the embodiment of God's image. Perfect image. And in Him, God's reign, God's rule had come to earth. And that with His resurrection, a new creation had already begun. That with His resurrection, new creation had started in the fallen world. And so as certain as the creation of world began at a particular time, in the beginning, the end times begins with the resurrection of Jesus, which is the beginning of the end of the previous world and the recreation of a new one. 
And so God has made a new humanity. No longer identified with the story of Adam, but with the story of Jesus. No longer identified with spiritual and physical death, but with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So that everyone who repents of their sins, everyone who trusts in Him, can have a new identity. Have been given a new identity by God. And are right now, the Bible tells us, spiritually resurrected. That if that's you, that if you've trusted Christ, right now, you are resurrected. United to His resurrection. And so we're invited into a new way of life because the destiny of the whole world, not just you, but the destiny of the whole world is heading toward a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. And so while a form of this fallen world will pass away, the substance of it is still guaranteed and it will be reformed by God. That's the Christian story. I love how one theologian put it, God's honor consists precisely in the fact that He redeems and renews the same humanity, the same world, the same heaven, and the same earth that have been corrupted and polluted by sin. Just as anyone in Christ is a new creation in whom the old has passed away and everything has become new, 2 Corinthians 5.17, so also this world passes away in its present form as well in order out of its womb at God's word of power to give birth and being to a new world. Kind of a mouthful. The theologian, what do you expect? He goes on to say, just as the caterpillar becomes a butterfly, as carbon is converted into diamond, as the grain of wheat upon dying in the ground produces other grains of wheat, as all of nature revives in the spring and dresses up in celebrative clothing, as the believing community is formed out of Adam's fallen race, as the resurrection body is raised from the body that is dead and buried in the earth, so too by the recreating power of Christ, the new heaven and new earth will one day emerge from the fire-purged elements of this world, radiant in enduring glory and forever set free from the bondage to decay. End quote. That's the story. That's what we as Christians believe, long for, hope for. That's what God is telling us. Which means that Christianity by its nature is actually very optimistic. Unbelievably optimistic about the world and about us in the world. That we are new creation. That we are God's people of hope. And that instead of being in relationship with Adam, we are in relationship with Christ. Instead of being united to sin and death, we are united to righteousness and life. And so our attachment as believers is no longer, as of now, it is no longer in Adam, and it is in Christ. Father Adam does not dictate your identity anymore, but the Son, Jesus Christ, is your identity now. And so we are now to live by faith, we're to live by faith in the life He lived and the story He has for the world. But the thing is, it's not easy believing that story. Again, I can get up here, I can draw an ugly picture, 
and I can say it out loud. But life is still tragic. Life is still hard. Facebook and Twitter are more interesting or more outraging. Kids are still whining. I'm still whining. A recent doctor visit seems like a more real picture of life. The opinion of others seems more accurate. The opinion of ourselves, our highest critic, more accurate. Our sinful desires still feel attractive. But this story means that there is something truer about you and about the world than what you're currently experiencing. That's what it means. There's something more true than what we feel and than what we see. So to do a riff on one person that I read this week, you are not what you have. You are not what you or others say or think of you. You are not your worst moment. You are not less than your best moment. That's what he said. But instead, we are a new creation in Christ Jesus right now. As Paul put it, for anyone united to Christ, there is a new creation. The old order has gone, and a new order has already begun. And so, our calling then is to be true to our new self in Christ. Be true to your new self. Be true to the new creation, not the fallen creation of this world. Be true to who you are in Christ, not to who you used to be in Adam. And so Christianity is not religiously behaving Christianly in order to become something new. That is not the gospel. Christianity is believing that what Jesus said that what He did, that His Word and work has made us new. I can't try myself to heaven. It's not going to work. I can't try on a new identity. The harder I try, the more exhausting it gets. It has to be created. We can't do this. We keep trying to recreate identities. It's not going to work. Because self cannot hold itself. But true identity in Christ is a gift to be received. It's something that we must be born into. So sometimes we approach the Christian life and the Bible itself like a rule-based document that we have to fall in line with. We better behave or else. But that's not the kind of writing it actually is. It's a story from Genesis to Revelation. And as we believe this story about God about Christ, we will become like Him. It's a story about the way in which God made promises to His people and fulfills His promises to His people in Jesus. And sadly, all too often, we can reverse this story. We can think that we have to do it. We have to try harder. We just need to do better. And we can be discouraged trying to behave like Christians instead of believing like Christians. 
So I want to encourage you to think about that story and to believe it as the truth about the world and the truth about you. One of the books of the Bible that we can treat as behave, do better, earn something, is James. We think, James is bro- we think Jesus' brother James is telling us to behave into our identity and relationship with God through the works we do. Yet at the very beginning of the letter, he establishes the fact that the only way we can get into relationship with God is by being born as a new creation. And so I want us to briefly look at that so that you can have both this big story of Scripture to walk away from, just be kind of reminded and amazed at the story that God has told, but also so that we have a few specific verses to run to when we have a case of the Mondays tomorrow that we can latch on to. We'll be in James chapter 1 for just a little bit. So James, the book of James, the letter of James, he's crazy about telling us how to live and act like Jesus. The theme is so strong that the Protestant reformer Martin Luther wasn't a fan of it and said some bad things about it. What we tend to miss is something at the very beginning of the letter that is central to the way in which James views the identity of the people he is writing to. And that he is telling them to live like Jesus, not by their own willpower, but because they've been given a new identity by virtue of being birthed by God. That's his view of God's people. And he does this by contrasting the character of God and his relationship to sin and temptation with ours. So James 1, in verse 12 to 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. And so in that first paragraph, James reminds us that we live in a fallen world of trial and temptation. Life is difficult on the outside and on the inside. Trials are a normal part of life. They are assumed and inescapable. And I was thinking, notice how the blessed aren't those without trial. The blessed aren't those without trial. 
I was thinking about the hashtag blessed that maybe you've seen on social networking. The hashtag blessed that the world paints through an Instagram filter of sexy success is not this kind of blessed. Obviously, there's a difference. The world says it looks like that, but James says blessing, being blessed, looks like the one who is steadfast in faith, loving God and Christ until the end. That's what he says. He says, you may not always feel like royalty now, but if you keep going, limping, warts and all, you will get the crown of life. That's what he tells us. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And then in verses 13, 14, and 15, James clearly shows us that sin comes from within our hearts. From within our hearts. God doesn't tempt us. Full stop. God does not tempt us. And he tells us why in the second paragraph. Because God is a good and gracious Father. Period. God doesn't tempt. God's a good and gracious Father. The problem is, is that even as Christians, we forget this. We forget it. And James doesn't want us to fall into the temptation and the deception of believing that because we are experiencing trials and temptations, God must not be good. James recognizes that you and I can begin to doubt the character of God and our identity in Him. And he doesn't want us to believe something false about who God is or about who we are. So he warns us, don't be deceived. God is good. Don't be deceived. He has given you a new identity. He has given you a purpose and a goal. And so what we can take to the bank no matter what happens is that God is always good, always brings life, And sin is always bad and always gives birth to death. Where sin brings destruction, desecration, and death, God brings gift, grace, and new creation. And so while ever-fluctuating desires inside seek to kill us and our emotional ups and downs lead us in all kinds of directions, our never-changing, our unchanging, good and gracious God has brought us forth by His will, through His Word, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. That's what He's telling us. So notice that it's due to God's will, not our will, that forms our identity. Verse 18. Of His own will, the His is the one before, the Father of lights, the one without variation or shadow due to change, the good giver, that His will is what has given us our identity. And God's will here is not the kind of willing, like if you're planning for a vacation and your spouse wants to go somewhere that you'd really rather not go, but you're willing to go. But it's the kind of willing that is a wanting and a purposing. That God brings us forth. That He gives birth to us actually a very feminine image, that He gives birth to us by His will 
and the word of truth, the gospel. And so our identity is found in the will of God and in his good news, the truth of the gospel. So to say it another way, like Paul says, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He willed it and he will complete it. And so therefore, James calls us to behave, to live like Jesus, because we have been birthed by God. We can't tell a baby to behave before it's birthed, and God calls us to behave only after we have been birthed by Him. And so we can live like a new creation and a resurrected person because we are united to the living and resurrected Jesus Christ. The image of first fruits that James uses is an agricultural metaphor. And it contains two ideas. First, the first fruits are a picture of the best. And we need to figure out what the image is because that just kind of sounds weird. You don't wake up just thinking, I'm, I'm first fruits. I'm the first fruits of God. It kind of doesn't really do much for us. But this idea of first fruits in the Old Testament is that we would give God the best sacrifice, that you would give the first, the first of your family, the first of your crop. And so when James calls us the first fruits, he is saying that we are his prized and his treasured possession, his best possession, which is probably why the New Living Translation says, and we out of all creation became his prized possession. Just kind of drops the first fruits language. But there's another image there. And it's in this image that matches our theme of new creation. That the first fruit in a crop is the sign and certainty of a future harvest to come. There's the first fruits. More is coming. The harvest is promised. To use financial language, it's that down payment that promises there's going to be more. There's more cash on the way. So James is saying here that we are the first fruits, the best of what humanity will look like in the future, and the guarantee of what is to come for all of creation. That's what God thinks about us. The God is going to renew all of creation, and we are the proof of that. So we should live our lives that look like we're a part of that new creation. Because we are. That in spite of the trials and the temptations of life that seek to discourage us and destroy us, that this is the truest thing about us. We're the first fruits of God. We are united to the first resurrection that's already broken into history, which is the guarantee that we too will rise. He reminds us that our sinful desires will kill us, but God's desire, God's will, is that we are His new creation. And so James wants us to see this radical shift. He wants us to have a radical shift in our perspective about our identity. He wants it to change the, the whole way we look at ourselves, the whole way we look at the world, the whole way we look at life. And it's more radical than the Copernican revolution. That the resurrection of Jesus changed reality and by doing so our identity 
And only that if we get this view will our view on reality change. And so think of how people's outlooks were radically changed. Everything they thought about the world changed in the Copernican Revolution. That we, the earth, is not the center of the solar system, but the sun is. That changed everything. It took a while for the church to catch on. And I think we tend to live as Christians like we are still pre-Copernicus. We live where the earth is the center of the universe, where the self is the center of the universe, where our sin is the center of the universe. But when we believe that, we're living in falsehood. We're not living in the new order, the new outlook of a post-Copernicus world where the sun The sun is the center. The sun is the defining reality. And so to be living on this side of the resurrection is the center, has Jesus at the center, and us in Him. His story belongs to us. And so through Christ, we are new creation. So we need to live like it. We need to believe it. One of the things that we take identity in nowadays, especially with the organic health movement, is in food. What we eat, what we don't eat. Or the kind of person we want to be based on what we put into our bodies. And so God gives us bread and wine to remind us of our identity, to remind us of the story that God is telling, to remind us of the most important person in the universe, Christ. And so we are bread and wine people because we have been united to the death and resurrection of Jesus And so we believe the story God is telling us. And we believe the person of Jesus when we drink His blood and eat His flesh every week because we need to be tangibly reminded that that is true. It's actually true. That we are no longer counted as sinners but as righteous. We're no longer in Adam but in Christ. That we're a part of His new creation. And that that is spiritually and absolutely real and true and as real as the cup that will be in your hand and as the bread in your hand. That's what He wants us to remember this morning and to believe about us. And He wants that to, to involve every single area of our lives. So I think sometimes we need to stop just focusing on the one thing in our lives or the difficulty, or the sin we struggle with, or the whatever, and focus more, turn our attention to what God has actually said about us. That that's where it has to shift. Because it's true. Jesus is alive. And we, by faith, are in Him. So let's, uh, let's sing and let's do some communion.